You have a problem with gays, Joe. Nah, not especially. Yes, you do. How many gays do you know? How many you know? <laughs> Lots. Like who? Karen Berman, my Aunt Teresa, cousin Tommy, who lives in Rochester, Eddie Myers from the office, um, Stanley, the guy who's putting in our kitchen cabinets. Aunt Teresa is gay? That beautiful, sensuous, voluptuous woman is a lesbian? Uh, since when? <laughs> Probably since she was born. Man. Who is Aunt Teresa? I'd love to meet this beautiful woman of a lesbian. Me too. Hi, I'm Zach Levy-Dyer. And I'm Violet Rose Collins. And you're listening to the fourth episode in our series, The Other Streets of Philadelphia, The Early AIDS Crisis in the City of Brotherly Love. That opening was from a scene in the movie Philadelphia, where one of the main characters, an African-American lawyer, Joe Miller, admits his discomfort with the thought of defending an openly gay client. All right, well, hey, I admit it, okay? I'm prejudiced. I don't like homosexuals. Hey, you got me. All right. I mean, the way these guys do that thing, don't they get confused? No, I don't know. Is that yours? Is that mine? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't want to be in the bed with anybody who's stronger than me or that has more hair on their chest than I do. Now, you can call me old-fashioned. You can call me conservative. (laughs) Just call me a man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Besides, I think you have to be a man to understand how... Really disgusting that whole idea is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, little caveman of the house. Damn, skippy. There you go, baby. Stay away from your Aunt Teresa too. Hey, Joe, don't say that to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think about those guys pumping up together, trying to be macho and faggot at the same time. Mm-hmm. I can't stand that shit. Hey, I'm being totally honest with you, okay? The scene is crucial because it shows that mainstream attitudes about homosexuality in the white community appear to be the same in the black community. Yes, there's so much to see about how and why heterosexuality and the politics of respectability matter when it comes to racial politics, especially when it comes to thinking about the effect of culture of poverty theory and scientific racism in the development of African-American politics. Well, as we heard in the first episode of this series, where we explored the work of Rashida Hassan Abdul-Kabir and Babachi, that's Blacks educating Blacks about sexual health issues, and what she thought about outreach in the Black community. If you remember, she believed that African Americans didn't separate themselves by sexuality, at least spatially, like the white community did. However, Gab and Yanni have produced an episode about how that argument doesn't necessarily hold water when it came to Black queer community members. Soon, African-American gay men began to organize against the racism they found in the mainstream gay community and against the homophobia they found in the mainstream Black community.
We had to deal with the institutional racism that was present. Then we had to deal with the institutional homophobia that existed within the black community. I am so shook. I'm shook that it took a class at Drexel University to properly understand this everlasting divide in the human race. This divide because of the color of one's skin, because of their gender identity, because of a disease that itself does not discriminate, but has still managed to cause such a big divide. We have acknowledged racism, we have acknowledged homophobia, but what we may have not given enough attention to is this intersectionality alongside the AIDS pandemic. In this episode of The Other Streets of Philadelphia, we will be hearing from Tyrone Smith, a black gay activist who was born in North Carolina and grew up in Philadelphia. I was born in Kinston, North Carolina. I came to Philadelphia when I was about six years old, and I've lived here ever since. I went to Philadelphia Public Schools. I left high school so I could support myself because I couldn't stay. My mother was not comfortable with my homosexuality or my gayness. Uh, but I was able to get a job and I've worked. Uh, and fortunately, I went back and was able to get my GED. In my late 20s, early 30s, uh, I went to Cabler Baking Company and I became a lab technician there. Fortunately, um, they got two for one. I was an African-American male and I was also identifying my homosexuality or my gayness. Tyrone is an activist who spoke out and educated people on the intersection of race and sexuality in the middle of an epidemic that is, quote unquote, a white man's disease. In this episode, we will discuss how racism in the gay community and homophobia in the black community left black gay men neglected and more vulnerable to the disease the importance of black gay organizations and how HIV and AIDS organizations and resources for minority groups must exist and be expanded upon today. Because whether or not you know it, the AIDS pandemic is still an issue. You just aren't hearing about it. We will now hear a piece from Tongues Untied, a film by award-winning producer Marlon Riggs. Silence is what I hear after the handshake and slap of five. After... What's happening? Boy. What's up, cuz? How you feel, girlfriend? Bloodness thing. When talking with a girlfriend, I am more likely to muse about my latest piece or so-and-so's party at Club Shishi than about the anger and hurt I felt that morning when a jeweler refused me entrance to his store because I am black and male and we are all perceived as thieves. I will swallow that hurt, and should I speak of it, will vocalize only the anger, saying, I should have bust out his fucking windows. Some of the anger will be exercised, but the hurt, which has not been given voice, prevails and accumulates. Silence is a way to grin and bear it, a way not to acknowledge how much my life is discounted each day. I strive to appear strong and silent. I learn to ingest hatred at a geometric rate and to count silently to ten, ten thousand, ten million. But as I've learned to mute my cries of anguish, so have I learned to squelch my exclamations of joy. What remains is the rap. 
that time we weren't really called gay. Uh, gay was a uh, uh, was not identified. We were folks that were in the life. Uh, it was a it was a, uh, a identification for African Americans. African Americans were in the life. When we migrated into Center City, then we picked up the language of being gay. There was definitely a distinction between white gay community and black gay community. You know, for a lot of people um, in my age bracket, they migrated to Philadelphia to engage with the white gay community. That was not my history. Um, you know, I, black folks stayed in North Philly. And you have to remember that was still in the time uh, of, of segregation and separation here in Philadelphia. The city of brotherly and sisterly love remained divided by race. When black gay men went out drinking and dancing downtown, they faced discrimination at bars that catered to white gay men. The problem was not limited to Philadelphia. Black gay men in other cities described similar experiences with racial discrimination. Moreover, the treatment that black men received at the city's gay bars was emblematic of a racial tension that diffused the community as a whole. This is Dan Royals, an assistant professor of history at Florida International University in Miami and the author of the book, To Make the Wounded Whole, The African-American Struggle Against HIV AIDS. Through both discrimination and gentrification, white gay men marked their downtown enclave as a space for affluent and middle-class whites. The, for black gay and bisexual men in particular, the whiteness of the neighborhood's bars and clubs also extended to its political institutions. This would have significant consequences for the way those same men, along with other Black Philadelphians, understood their risk for AIDS. We will now hear from Phil Wilson, founder and executive director of Black AIDS Institute, in a news talk program titled Tell Me More, hosted by Mitchell Martin. Now, uh, we have issues where in the beginning of the epidemic, now the epidemic was characterized as a white gay disease. So if you're black, it wasn't about you. Uh, in black communities, you know, uh, certainly uh, people weren't thinking about you know, HIV and AIDS. And quite frankly, at a time when people weren't talking about the reality that there were gay and bisexual men in black communities. This is another scene from the movie Philadelphia in which Joe, a black male lawyer, gets hit on by another black man. What's the matter with you? Do I look gay to you? Joe, relax. Take it as a compliment. Jeez. You know, that is exactly the kind of bullshit that makes people hate you a little. Families were rejecting them. Preachers were preaching that this was God's plague. I had friends dying, and the church would not do their services. We would have memorial services in bars in our backyards because they wouldn't do it. So there's a history of neglect. That provided the virus an opportunity to take hold, you know, and this is a disease of opportunity. The other factors that contributed to the problem is that there are all these other issues and continue to be other issues on the plate when HIV enters the room. Poverty doesn't take a vacation. Unemployment doesn't take a vacation. Teen pregnancies don't take a vacation. You know, violence doesn't take a vacation. Now, you add on to that issues around a lack of access to health care even now. Uh, and then you have the issue around stigma and black, gay, and bisexual men struggling with what I say is no place to be. 
know, where they don't feel home in black communities because of the issue of sexual orientation, and they don't feel home in a larger white LGBT uh, community because of the issues of race. You know? So if you put all that together, regardless, you, know, you would come out with something like HIV and AIDS and an epidemic that looks like the epidemic that we're finding among black men who have sex with men. As the disproportionate impact of the new disease on African-Americans became clear, activists challenged local AIDS groups to improve their minority outreach. Critics sought more than token representation of African-Americans within the PCHA and the AIDS Task Force. They felt that more minority volunteers, staff, and leaders at the agencies would yield more effective AIDS services for people of color. For example, if the AIDS Task Force recruited more Black operators to its AIDS hotline, African-Americans would be more comfortable calling and more likely to believe the information they received. In What Makes the Wounded Whole, Chapter 3, Joseph Beam says, It comes as no surprise to me that the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force has trouble getting AIDS information to North Philadelphia, that the New York City gay men's health crisis outreach doesn't quite make it to Harlem. Quoting Beam again, he says, Our responsibility is twofold. We should continue holding a gun to the heads of Philadelphia AIDS Task Force, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and the Whitman Walker Clinic until minority outreach coordinators are hired and specific programs are implemented. But concurrently, we must ensure our own safety and administer to our own sick. Black Men Loving Black Men is the revolutionary act of the 80s. And so I went down, I got trained, um, and helped to form the first organization within the, within the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force for Black folks, which was interpreting the minority perspective for action, which was um, we all came together to sensitize white, white suburbanites how to deal with this issue. Tyrone began an organization called Unity Incorporated. Although there is archival silence regarding Unity Incorporated and Tyrone's work with this organization, there are many other black gay AIDS organizations that share the same purpose, and many of these organizations are still living to see the light of day. Adodi, a black gay men's group founded in Philadelphia in 1986, took its name from the plural of Addo, a Yoruba word to describe a man who loves another man. Adodi members first met informally at the home of Clifford Rollins, an art therapist in Philadelphia, to talk about everything from, quote, the, last, the isolation they felt as Black gay men, to the alarming number of their brothers dying of AIDS, to the lack of institutions available to help them cope. Adodi is an organization that creates a space for same-gender, loving men of African descent. Adodi provides a spiritual and accepting environment for fraternal relationships, basing their organizations off six principles, which are as follows. Spiritually guided, honesty, openness and clarity, sensitivity to feelings, care fronting, resolution, and the five A's. Acknowledge, appreciate, affirm, accept, and ache. Alongside the same values of Adodi, the group Gay Men of African Descent created an environment where black men could love and accept themselves and one another. A Brooklyn-based organization partially dedicated to addressing some of this fear and stigma is called GMAD, Gay Men of African Descent. Quoting Dan Royals, What Makes the Wounded Whole, Chapter 3 Again, in nearby New York City, Beam's words became a rallying cry for the group Gay Men of African Descent. Through consciousness raising and discussion groups, 
Members urged black men to love black men, to hold themselves in high esteem, to see themselves and each other as desirable, and to take care of one another in the midst of crisis. They did so in part by making black gay men visible to one another, to both black and gay communities, and to the wider world. Whereas Rashida Hassan argued that black gay men were primarily black and secondarily gay, and the National Task Force on AIDS Prevention focused its energies on gay men of color more broadly, GMAD saw blackness and gayness as more or less equally important parts of a holistic black gay identity. Building on this notion, the group aimed to repair the psychological harm that black gay men suffered from living in a racist, homophobic society. This, GMAD leaders argued, would be key to changing their brother's sexual behavior in the age of AIDS and thus reducing their risk for HIV. And we the people, and, and it was just such a, it was a different time. It was a different time. And, and, I, and I think that it made it a human thing. And you could relate to it, you know. We the People was an organization that created a space for anyone living with HIV. We the People was really the, 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 the cornerstone uh, because uh, everybody there was dealing with the same thing. There might have been some, you know, harsh words or whatever, but then if the white brother was throwing up from the medication, the black brother was throwing up from the medication, they had that in common. So they, that started a conversation that they could have among themselves. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That I think that the whole racial piece kind of like dissipated. It was the issue of, black, of men being sick or people being sick. In a time where AIDS was seen as a white man's disease, we the people erased the boundaries of race, class, and gender. They brought everyone together to fight from a mutual enemy, and this was necessary. So you find out that there's we the people, so you go there and you hear what's going on, you get the information, you bring it back to the hood, to among your people. So that was kind of like how I got involved with that. Um, and to for some people, they thought that um, I... I, had a, I did have a role there. Uh, I was a part of the board. I was assistant to the director. We the people and Unity also had a relationship with each other. And we would send people down, you know, HIV people. Our case managers would send people down. That's where you would send people so that they would know other people who were dealing with them. Tyrone is speaking about how those from We the People would send folks to unity and allow them to be amongst their own community. This is just one example of how the upbringing of Black Gay AIDS organizations have helped not only bring together people, but also provide a safe space and community. Yeah, because a lot of times you, you, you see the images of, uh, of the affluent white gay man, and then you, you often see the poverty of the Black gay man. And where do they intersect? But now we had gotten to this point where this community of, for lack of a better word, disenfranchised individuals of all ethnicities were coming together to deal with the issue that I thought would never be mine because I didn't deal with white men and I'm not white and it was and the white gay community had captured that, you know?
it was a white gay man's disease. So, I mean, for me, no, it ain't my shit. I, that's not me. But then as, it, as, as we went on and we started seeing that it was a human immune deficiency syndrome, the human, any human who could be sexually active, who interacted with individuals, the human piece of that. And I think somewhere along the way we kind of lost that when we stop identifying it as a human immune issue. White America believes this is over. I mean, you actually hear people say the height of the epidemic. There is no way that 1989 was the fucking high. In this segment, we will hear from Leah Green as she interviews Darion, a black gay man living with AIDS, Tori Cooper, an HIV prevention specialist, Pearl, a black trans woman who does a weekly outreach for homeless women, and several others in a YouTube video titled Gay, Black, and HIV Positive, America's Hidden Pandemic. So a black gay man in the South, his chances of getting HIV are about one out of two. A white gay man is closer to around one out of 11. So that's really a startling statistic. Sometimes because of their skin color, they have access to certain things that, that black gay men don't. And sometimes that includes access to stuff like PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And that's for people who are HIV negative. It's a pill that they take once a day that keeps them HIV negative, keeps them from getting HIV. And what we're finding is, um, as PrEP continues to roll out, there are a lot more people who are white who may not be as high risk who have access to PrEP. According to the CDC's HIV surveillance report, in 2018, Black and African American folks and Hispanic and Latinx folks accounted for 69% of HIV diagnosed, but compromised only 31% of the U.S. population. All right, so this is my HIV medicine. I'll take one a day. This is 25-year-old Darian, who moved to Atlanta from Huntsville, Alabama in 2014. After three years in the city, he contracted HIV. Like many young people, Darian was careless with condoms two or three times. But unlike most young people, his risk of HIV was so high because of who he is and where he is. What would happen if you didn't stick to this? If you don't stick in medicine, you will develop uh, AIDS, and they will really kill you. So, if you take in medicine, eat right, live right, you you uh, you keep your T cells higher and your viral loads down, and with that, um, you you'll um, be able to maintain a HIV positive undetectable status. What does it mean to have an undetectable viral load? You're not able to transmit the virus to somebody else. How much does it cost? Ooh, it costs a lot. Um, but there's different programs out there. Like, this costs $2,000 uh, per bottle. Yeah, $2,000. Next year, Darian will come off his mom's insurance policy, leaving him unable to pay the $2,000 a month he needs for his medicine. Through his support network, he has found out about programs that can help towards the cost. But for other young gay black men across America, these resources simply aren't there. Reducing the toll of HIV on communities that are disproportionately affected requires confronting the complex social, economic, and environmental factors that fuel the epidemic, says CDC's 2016 HIV surveillance report. Poverty can limit access to healthcare, 
HIV testing, and medications that can lower levels of HIV in the blood and help prevent transmission risk. In addition, those who cannot afford the basics in life may end up in circumstances that increase their risk for HIV infection. Discrimination, stigma, and homophobia, far too prevalent in many communities. These factors may discourage individuals from seeking testing, prevention, and treatment services. Higher rates of incarceration among men can disrupt social and sexual networks in the broader community and decrease the number of available partners for women, which can fuel the spread of HIV. Language barriers and concerns about immigration status present additional prevention challenges. But these systematic and historical factors are not enough to persuade everyone. Some people place the blame for the HIV epidemic solely on the gay black men living through it. White people, or white men specifically, aren't getting it as much, so the response is totally watered down. When we think about all of the other things that affect black men that you know when we do the what if around them so like what if said thing what if police brutality were happening against mostly white men what would the response be then the onus is always on us you should have done more to avoid you getting it we don't challenge or question the systems that are set up that leave us predisposed to getting hiv for black trans women the hiv rate is also one in two but their risk of homelessness, drug addiction, and prostitution is higher. And each of these make it harder to access the HIV care they need. Because there's not too many organizations out there now that helping transgenders that are homeless and living with HIV. So I took it upon myself to do something like that because I was also homeless and I'm living with HIV. Thankfully, there are people like Pearl who have started organizations like Legender Incorporated. But as she says, there are not too many organizations. The statistics are too devastating for there not to be too many organizations and for this to be a topic that is not widely talked about today. Why are so many people unaware or just flat out not talking about this catastrophic issue? That there are so many people still dying from AIDS. I think that, you know, there is still, uh, there is a silence now around AIDS in the United States because of who AIDS affects now, it has over time increasingly become a disease of uh, black communities, the poor, um, you know, IV drug users, uh, people who are incarcerated, you know, in to use the term that Rashida used, uh, the, the, that Rashida Hassan used, the disease has settled in the communities that have the least. And so it's a really kind of out of sight, out of mind thing where because AIDS is not killing, uh, you know, white gay men anymore, or, or to the degree that it once was, it's just not as much of a concern for, you know, policymakers and for society at large. One of the major um, policy innovations that we got within the last 20 years was PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, which was, um, you know, billions of dollars for AIDS treatment and prevention in Africa, but that left a lot of black activists in the United States asking, well, what about a pet bar for black America? Because, you know, because we are still suffering from the disease, but we don't see that kind of funding when it's people in our community versus people elsewhere. And, you know, that is for, I think a couple reasons, you know, one is because we, because U.S. policymakers and maybe the public at large have a kind of um, 
get get very skittish about anything that seems like a welfare program because that is you know because of that is racialized and 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 raced and classed in our political discourse um but also because the epidemic in africa is one that's seen as largely heterosexual so you know you have kind of racism homophobia and classism you know shaping uh what has been politically possible for an AIDS response to, for a response to AIDS in the United States. To look into faces like Darion and to think, you may not be in this situation if people saw value in your life. Thank you for joining us in this episode of The Other Streets of Philadelphia. And a special thank you to Tyrone Smith, the John Wilcox Archives, Dan Royals, all our speakers, and Professor Ramos for making this all possible.